What is the Broadway sound? During the golden age of Broadway, it was easy to say. Big and brassy, 18 to 25 players at least. But now, money is tight, musical styles have changed, and the shows now tour a lot. Money is being made by the rights companies like MTI, Tamps Whitmark, and Sam French, renting out the rights to Broadway shows to high schools and local theater companies. But how do you find the right quality of player locally, and money to pay for the orchestra sizes of the past? Most producers just simply don't budget enough or want to spend money on musicians. I think as a music director, I spend 50% of my time stressing about how to make the music maintain the original feel and intention by using less than half the allotted players, sometimes even less than that. Some of the rights companies have reductions available for rent for some shows, but they're still too large for many producers to want to use. So we reduce. And we reduce. And the music director becomes pianist, arranger, and orchestrator all in one. And that's what the public thinks we do now. But should we do it? Are there better solutions? And when we do have to do it, how do we do it? On today's episode, my guests and I will discuss these questions and more. So let's reduce the pit from the pit. My guests today are good friends of mine. Kevin Wu, who's one of the most prolific reed players in many local pits in Vancouver, and Claire Wyatt, another music director who has had to reduce almost every one of the shows she's had to do. Uh, welcome to the show. Hello. Hey. Thanks for having us. You're welcome. So I have a couple of questions I wanted to start with, but um, the first one is this. Have either of you ever played or MD'd a show where you got to do the full orchestra? Yes, actually. Oh, yeah. The very first show that I music directed, which was John and Jen. Mm. Uh, but that one, that's easier because it's written for three. It's piano, drums, and cello. Right. So, yeah, we did have all three of those. Well, that's a win, I guess. That so. was a win, but that's the only <laughs> one. <laughs> right. Have you ever played in a full? Yeah, I guess in a similar sense, the, the shows that have smaller orchestras that I've done for sure, we've used all of them. Um, but there have been a couple times where I've played in an orchestra that actually did use the full 25-piece orchestra. Um, right. And and sounds great. Like, right. you can't, you can't not, not enjoy that. So. Which show did you get to do? Um, some of the earlier on ones that I had done, um, like The King and I, okay. yeah. uh, with a full orchestra, um, we used full orchestras for, for most of the community shows that uh, I had started playing out, and we we have used full orchestras. Um, for Titanic, we crammed all of the players into <laughs> into the pit, and uh, it was very, very tight, but uh, probably one of the best sounds that that I can recall. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the best feelings, like there's, there's nothing better than playing in, in, a in a show where every single color is there. Every single part is there. It's just kind of magic.
should we be do? I guess the big question is: Should it be we be redu- reducing orchestras? Should we be doing it? That's a hard topic to tackle. Yeah, because um, you can come at it from different standpoints, right? From an artistic, creative point of view. Of course, it's never ideal, mm-hmm. but when you know if what you're working for with is this set budget, then it's not so much a question of should you do it, but you have to do it ultimately. Right. In New York, for instance, they mm-hmm. they've been reducing orchestras for a long mm-hmm. time. In fact, there was a big fight where they wanted to go almost completely with track, where they wanted to reduce that, and that was a big fight from the union. And the union eventually got most of their way. But now they're, they're reduced quite a bit now. Uh, you do find that certain composers have started to reduce their orchestras. Uh, Jason Robert Brown, for instance, you know, he does his own orchestration. And I know for like Bridges of Madison County, he reduced it to 12. Mm-hmm. But that's how it is. It still sounds good, but yeah. it's not, you know, 18 well, or 20. Yeah, and you can look at Parade, which even the first incarnation of that was 18, I right. believe. And now the version that they did later and now license is 12 or 13. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It leads to another question. Like in these rights companies, and we have to deal with them all the time, MTI and Towns Whitmark and Sam French, uh, sometimes they reduce the orchestras and sometimes they don't for shows. I guess if they make their money, they don't care. But mm-hmm. um, do you think there needs to be an effort to reduce the orchestras or have them do it? Yeah, I think I think that that's actually a, a good point. Um, there are There are some shows that that don't have reduced orchestrations and um, they could probably could get away with, with having, having one for it. It's like a full-time job for somebody somewhere to take all those, those scores and, and write them down. But there's, there's a, a good way of doing it. And then there's sometimes maybe a not so good way of doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I guess just an example that comes to the top of my head is where um you have a show like Legally Blonde, which I believe was written for uh, five read parts originally, four or five read parts, and they've reduced it down to two um, with the with the books that you get from right. from the rights holder. Um, and if you take a look through the book, um, the orchestration it still sounds great, but they've taken some say piccolo parts and and put them into one of the read books but but um the instrumentation that they've based it on is not necessarily range appropriate right so, so they put it in sort of extremities of of yeah like mm-hmm. so piccolo has been put into the extremities of flute which which is you know mm-hmm. for for somebody who is a primarily a flute player as a doubler would be great, but a lot of times you don't find that. A lot of times you'll find um, that the reed players are either primarily clarinet or primarily saxophone, right. um, and flute is something they've picked up because most of, most books these days will have flute in them. Mm-hmm. One of the things they originally did on Broadway to reduce orchestras was to simply just multi-read every part. I mean, there was a time period where the instruments were separated. You would play flute and pick, and then you'd play clarinet. You know, King and I still like that a little bit. The original Russell Bennett arrangements or orchestrations are like that. But nowadays they think, well, what we'll do is we'll just reduce the player to play five instruments, and we'll get a whole bunch of them to do that, and then you can have all these colors. But um, it gets difficult. I, there's still scores, you know, just working on 42nd Street at um, Studio. That score, 
is really initially calls for five multi-read players. And that's very common at the time period. But like finding that skill level in locally is really difficult to do, even at that level. Mm-hmm. Especially yeah. someone who is that good at all of those things. Right. I mean, in New York, New York, I'm sure you could probably find mm-hmm. those players, but they're all pros and you have to pay for them. And you can find them here, too. But, you know, the producers don't know that. They don't know what to budget for players, necessarily. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Tell me a little bit how you think about the orchestrations of the past as opposed to more modern orchestrations. Do you find that there's a difference in those orchestrations? There is, yeah. But it's even just sheer numbers contributes to like the old sound feeling so lush and so full. And it's just, it's a very different feel because that you get this symphonic, traditional Broadway sound. And I think the sound of modern Broadway is, it's in part a reflection of new composing styles and just genres of music are shifting. But a big part of that is just having to deal with smaller budgets and smaller orchestras. Mm-hmm. So you'll get a lot of, you know, you have the rock-based stuff and having something like violin or trumpet or any sort of wind instrument, it, it's meant to add color more mm. so than... Yep. I don't, substance isn't really the right term here, but right. yeah, it's just, it's not full. It's just like an extra thing. Yeah. I think, too, you find with a lot of the modern, uh, more modern shows, they are geared more towards rock and Mm -hmm. like the influences are different and so uh, an instrument say for example like bassoon Mm -hmm. uh, you would probably never find a solo bassoon part in in more of a um contemporary or modern day show and just finding bassoon players (laughs) is not as common as it was but i mean it was certainly a mainstay in many shows of the past in the golden age of Broadway or whatever, there's always bassoon yeah. and oboe and double reeds, but yeah, they're going to cut out a lot more. And part of what I wanted to talk about too was, um, the keyboarding out of instruments. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I even wrote in my, my notes here that at one time I used to think it was okay. But, you know, the more shows I've been doing lately, the less I like it. Um, I think it's not even a very good stopgap in a lot of times, even with brass thickening and mm-hmm. stringing. I mean, certain things you can get away with. I still believe that a lot of percussion instruments can work okay. Mallet works. Yeah, for sure. I think it's fine. I mean, I think you can substitute a xylophone and the and those kind of things on keyboard. But when it gets into brass and reeds, and yeah. I just never like buy the sound. I'd rather have that one real player yeah. than mm-hmm. you know five bass yeah. players. I think um, a lot of sounds are evolving too. Yeah. Um, uh, it, it, the, the, one of the shows that I'm working on right now, The Little Mermaid, uses four keyboards. Right. So, um, and it uses uh, five wind players. And... Um, the or- I have to admit that the orchestration um, for The Little Mermaid, and I, and I found this with similarly with um, with Beauty and the Beast, it's it's done extremely well in terms of using the keyboards as more of a support to the live to the live musician, right? Which 
don't know if that's mm-hmm. live, but they're yeah, all sure. they're all live. <laughs> um, but yeah, so um, the keyboards in this show have huge roles, but when they are um, playing brass sounds or woodwind sounds, um, more often it's supporting, which right. is which is kind of neat and actually um, enhances the sound more so than just replacing the instrument. Right, yeah. Yeah, I think main stage is obviously a wonderful tool and can really help. And I think it has its place when it's intended to be in the original orchestration. So just like Little Mermaid, where those four keyboard parts were meant to be there and they were in the original production. And they're, yeah, they're being used as support. Uh, then I think it it does work, and even those synthesized brass or string sounds, it can really contribute to filling out the overall sound. But I think it's when you get into, okay, we're going to put all of the trumpet parts into the keyboard mm-hmm. because we just don't have the room for a trumpet player. That's when I think it compromises the integrity of the music. Yeah. And I know Beauty and the Beast was originally written for a larger orchestra, right? Yeah, and absolutely. But you did the eleven part arrangement. We did, right? uh, yeah, we did the eleven eleven piece. And um, even though some of the sounds were not the best, um, it still helped fill out the orchestra. Um, a- as we mentioned, it, it wasn't uh, it wasn't the primary sound that you heard. Like you right. would hear, mm-hmm. you know, a clarinet. Uh, an actual clarinet on sort of the top leading line with the with the keyboard clarinet sounds or other mm-hmm. woodwind sounds underneath it. Yeah. Yeah, and I think as long as you can have at least one of the actual instrument there to for the attack and the inflections and all of that the color and the nuances that come with sustaining an instrument like that that a mm-hmm. keyboard just can't do, mm-hmm. then I think it works in conjunction with each other. For sure. And have you ever, um, have you thought of ever a time where like, you're like this, um, it doesn't work particularly well, like in a show that you've had to do where you're like, wow, that we shouldn't have actually used a keyboard probably in that part. Have you ever had experience with that? I've had, I'm, I'm generally in the camp of if like, I'm not going to substitute a keyboard in in place of an instrument so if we just don't have like say i don't have room for any brass then i wouldn't just try and cover it on the synth in its own right um i remember like doing jesus christ superstar Mm -hmm. there were we just it was a simple rock band so bass drums keyboard and guitar i think it was just the four of us Mm -hmm. and there were a couple spots that I put in some like trumpet patches for those fanfare moments and looking back on it I think I just would play it on the piano or maybe have the guitar cover it I don't know (laughs) sure sure yeah yeah Yeah, you always get that for sure but the keyboarding is interesting now because I guess you do save a couple of seats for somebody yeah Mm -hmm. for the for example the fourth the fourth book in Little Mermaid uh, is optional. You can either use the fourth keyboard, which is all strings, or right. you could use um, two violins and a cello. Mm-hmm. And it actually specifically states that if you're going to do that, you really should use two violins. So right. you're going from three players to one. Right. Yeah. Financially, what's yeah. the right decision? Of course. Yeah, that's it. 
in 42nd Street, and this was a consideration of mine because I could only really fit so many players in that in that pit. <laughs> Not really a pit, but it's a stage. Um, is for the five doubling read parts, they had created a keyboard book for all the read parts to be combined into one keyboard. And I never got to see it because you have to order it with the full mm. orchestration. Mm. Oh my God. I mean, I can't even imagine what that's like. And I haven't, I mean, it's an older show, mm-hmm. so I don't know when they did that book, but it must've like, what, what would it sound like on your DX seven these days? I mean, yeah. create, I can't I even imagine as a piano player, how you would even begin to play that to reflect, <laughs> like to make it sound anywhere near natural. Yeah, and all the, especially all the colors with five reeds. I mean, sometimes it's saxes, sometimes it's flutes, clarinets. I mean, it's insane. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I'm interested to see it if I ever get a chance to do it again. Yeah. I want to see that book and see what yeah. it looks like. And I imagine it's not always just one instrument at a time, right? No. I imagine you'd, you'd be playing multiple parts at once and you just, yeah. it doesn't, it doesn't work. And there's a ton of solos in that show, like sax solos and clarinet yeah. solos. And, and, you know, it was the same thing. You remember when we, um, what was the other show that had all the, Oh, in Crazy For You, mm-hmm. also Tams Whitmark, they had created a single keyboard book that covered all the string parts. But like, and it was written like almost impossible to play. It was like articulated like crazy, like running, six, you know, mm-hmm. like the strings do. Like, Yeah, I mean, which is easy things. to do on a string instrument, but it <laughs> doesn't work in like four octaves on a keyboard. Yeah, you, you just, yeah. It would sound terrible. So, um, yeah, I think it's always an interesting choice, especially some of those shows that fell into the late 70s or mid 70s through the mid 80s. We had keyboards, but they didn't nearly have the, the capacity that yeah. we do yeah. now. I guess they were trying to make something work for tours or whatever, but, you know. ever used or considered using an electronic wind instrument yeah like an ui or whatever they yeah. call those things i've never because i don't even know how they sound mm. has anyone yeah, tried I, have you tried I, I haven't tried them the uh, i have considered trying it but more out of curiosity and fun i mean it, it's basically just a midi controller you could yeah. put it through main stage and and like get anything. yeah like, but it, the, the difference is that you can it's sensitive to mm-hmm. like breath pressure and vibrato yeah. and all of that yeah. kind of stuff um, and i've i've yeah. seen videos and i of course it's never going to replace the authentic instrument but i think it's a better option than trying to play those lines on keyboard the yeah. downside being you can only of course play one at, one, at a time. one sound at a time though maybe for somebody that's um a saxophone player that needs to play a high flute part yeah right yeah maybe it's useful because flute you could maybe get away with yeah yeah and then you and, could play it with the right finger and, and, and i think that's when i had really considered it <laughs> and then just kind of you know gave up on that and, yeah. and learned well, we should, learned the instrument well we should we should get one. I have one. Oh, you so, do have one. Yeah, oh, let's oh, use let's, it. Let's try it. <laughs> <laughs> the sneaky secret. Uh, I would be very interested to see what that sounds like. Yeah. We'll get yeah. Kevin to try it out. All okay. right. Awesome. Done. I'm excited. Next show. All right.
Okay. When you finally agree to do one of my shows. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> well, you know what would be interesting with that is with main stage, even though you're playing a single instrument, you could make the patch to be multiple instruments played in thirds too. You know, it's actually yeah, that's Absolutely. true. You could, you could do like doubling oh. rounds. You'd really have to program it properly, but it would be interesting. These possibilities are endless. Oh. Now. I remember in high school, in in my last two years, it was like 93, 94, or whatever, uh, our band teacher, who was an oboist, she had one of these, like a really early Akai or whatever that made that, that wind instrument. It was like an Yeah, it's Akai. Yeah. yeah. Made... Uh, or played it, and I remember thinking, God, that sounds terrible. Like, <laughs> at the time, the MIDI was pretty limited with its sound right. bank. But I remember thinking the instrument was cool. I was like, oh, that'd be really mm. cool. I can't imagine what the future will hold. I'm interested that it hasn't taken off yeah. as big as it did. The only... I've seen it used in videos on Leonard Cohen's tours, maybe from like oh. four years ago. His, he had a guy, I don't remember his name. Right. Uh, but yeah, he just busted out this iwi and went crazy on it. It was... I thought it sounded great. It cool. was cool. I guess you'd really... Just like any other instrument, you have to get used yeah. to using it. Yeah. All and it, of course, it depends on the context it's used in too, right? Totally. So whether or not it sounds good. What is it? Look, is it the big, like, white stick? Uh, yeah. It it's like... It's a black front. It's yeah. about the size of a clarinet and it's black front and, yeah. like, metal... Metal keys. And oh, it's got metal keys. Yeah. Oh, I thought I had plastic It doesn't... Um, they don't... You don't push them. They're just sensitive just touch. to touch. Oh, I see. Yeah. Well, it's okay. I'm going to add that to the list of things to do. I should have brought yeah. it in. We could have oh, tested it out. Yeah. <laughs> Next oh time. Yeah. We'll have I'm all excited episode, now. Entire episode just uh, dedicated testing, to that. Testing <laughs> products. We, yeah, could, we, yeah. could, we could get sponsored. We could get free products. <laughs> I like it. Um, what other things can we do? <laughs> from your orchestras first but is there any sort of hard and fast rules about your certain technique of something that you would you always cut or you always make sure you keep in a pit or you would like to in your case? if there's any moments in the show where groove is important at all you got to keep the drums yeah yeah, yeah. for sure um good hard and fast i often will unless it's like a very very rock rock show i will cut bass because that's easy to just you know play more left hand in the piano and mm -hmm. they usually find that's fine mm -hmm. yeah yeah do you have anything that you i mean obviously it's different perspective for you yeah it's you different perspective i would cut no i would cut everything but the reed no <laughs> just a whole reach. um i i i think i have to agree with claire that um you you still need to have your rhythm section mm -hmm. and, and i think it's it's primarily um important when you have a, a rock based uh show but i think even for those uh some of the classic shows with just the boom chick of the drums you still need you still need that to drive the yeah mm -hmm. to drive the the band um 
but going back to just like instrumentation wise, you know, um, like I said before, a nice, a representation of, of each family is great. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And then depending on which, you know, depending on the show specific, mm-hmm. um, I would start there and then add in um, what kind of colors you want um, to keep the show interesting. So, yeah, yeah. That's, that's a good point. I think it's also important to, especially if you're in a situation where like, okay, well, we need piano bass drums guitar for sure just due to the nature of the show i think it's important to make sure that you include something that can contrast to that which are also percussive Mm -hmm. that you need something that can like do sustain and evoke those kinds of emotions that are so important and that some colors yeah keep it interesting Yeah, yeah absolutely uh, Claire also has recently done um, Sunday in the Park with George with United Players here in Vancouver and had to reduce the orchestra also. Uh, what what did you end up having? Okay, first of all, what's the original orchestration? Can you say uh, that? I think it's 13. Right. So there's a keyboard, synthesizer, percussion, bass, th- uh, three, no, two reed parts, mm-hmm. and... Two violin, cello, French horn. Uh, there's, I think there's another. It's another brass. In another there. brass yeah, in there, yeah. yeah. Right. So it, it's quite large. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and we had five. Right. So I ended up with piano, synthesizer, French horn, violin, and reeds. So right. we had one player covering both reed books. Yeah. And it worked, you know, yeah. it's, it's never, those situations are never ideal. And what I actually deal with a lot, like Kevin, you're often working with, you still have like 12, 15 players, right? Yeah. Uh, and then a lot of my job is having to reduce those down to like four or five, yeah. which is, it's just a different different ball game you know and sometimes i think that's almost easier than like okay which three parts do i cut and having to just choose more more to get rid of sometimes can be easier but yeah uh, i think uh you and and steven greenfield covered a little bit of this in your first episode Mm -hmm. where um sondheim in general is 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 orchestrated smaller Mm -hmm. to begin Mm -hmm. with um so so it works if you yeah. have to pare it down a little bit more. On the other hand, sometimes I find that Sondheim, like those orchestrations, and it's Jonathan Tunick, mm-hmm. so much of it. Totally. Um, but each part is so individual and so important in its own right yeah. that I find those so hard to choose what them. to get rid of. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and that that Sondheim sound—that's what Steve and I talked about. It that you know is as brilliant as Sondheim is, which he is. But it's Jonathan Tunick that's really made his sound, you know, especially in those shows, Into the Woods, and you know, and all the, you know, Sunday. You know that that kind of open trumpet, muted company has it everywhere yeah. in company, yeah. and you hear it. It's very like a New York. It's a city sound. Mm-hmm. It's uh, that kind of thing. And yeah, you're right. Replacing those instruments is so difficult because they are so alone out there, a lot of it. But what he does uh, better than a lot of orchestrators is taking these really kind of disparaging instruments. And when they're all together, it makes them sound like quite an amazing, uh, thick, like movement of a sound. Yeah. Or you think, oh, that, you know, trumpet flute part, you know, it's weird, but yeah. it totally works and it, it's a thing. Especially yeah. if, like, as as the instrumentalist, you're 
you know, going through it on your own time, just practicing your part. And it's like, what? What the heck is this? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. I'm so confused. And then you get in with everybody else. And it's like, oh, okay, this makes so much more sense now. It's the little things you do together, do together, do together, that make perfect relationships. The hobbies you pursue together, savings you accrue together, looks you misconstrue together, that make marriage a joy. It's the little things you share together, swear together, wear together, that make perfect. Well, this brings me up another point, too, and for the listeners, too, Sunday, for the, the orchestra and Sunday in the Park was put in a room that was not in the space, and they were behind uh, the lobby. And that's not unusual. I mean, Arts Club does that, a lot of Broadway shows do that, too, but. Talk to me a bit about the acoustic sound of the instruments as opposed to being mic'd and put through a house system, for instance. Yeah. I know this is going to be a little bit biased. Yeah. I'm, of course, a proponent of, like, to me, the acoustic sound is always preferable. I I would love to have the sound from the orchestra coming live. Uh, And it'll depend on the system in the theater, the sound system, but... Sometimes, you know, I've gone to see shows where even even in a pit, right, the the sound coming out is just so compressed and it doesn't sound it doesn't sound like what you expect this full Broadway size orchestra to sound like. Yeah. Um on in technical terms, having the band separated like that, uh it does really make it easier to mix. Sure. Uh you don't have to worry about drowning out the singers. Mm-hmm. Uh you don't have to worry about like getting feedback so much so that's mm-hmm. that's so one advantage yeah mm-hmm. for sure yeah and how was you how's your been experience both of your experiences in different venues for acoustics i mean okay we, we've all played at theater of the stars <laughs> yeah um so there's its own challenge you know yeah. but there's other venues that work well it's actually uh i was talking to a sound operator just yesterday about this um and uh, he was he was comparing um, running sound in a theater such as uh, the Michael J. Fox or Gateway, where you've got the orchestra underneath the stage in the pit, mm-hmm. um, where some sound will come out, as opposed to say Massey Theater, where the orchestra sits in front of the pit, or sorry, in front of the stage, not in a pit. So they're actually right in the theater there. Um, and uh, this person was, was comparing the two and saying that how much easier it is to mix um, at the Massey Theater because you have so much acoustic sound. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the sound can be more lush. Granted, that organization does use more musicians. Right. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it was it was quite an interesting conversation. Then you bring up Theatre and the Stars where, yes, we're under the stage uh, in the pit, but the sound really doesn't come out of the, you know, the the openings of the pit. And, yeah. and even if it does, it has, uh, it has absolutely nothing to uh, bounce off of or mm-hmm. to... Like it's just open, just goes right out. Yeah, yeah. just goes right out into the <laughs> into the eagles. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe the first three rows, maybe here. Yeah, some yeah. of the actual acoustics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there. so then in that in that theater specifically, um, you can't. It, 
different areas, different seating areas of that theater will always be different, mm-hmm. right? Like different yeah. sounds. So yeah. you could have a patron come and they sit in one spot and they they love it. They think it's the best sound they've ever had, and then mm-hmm. yeah. they come back and sit in another spot. It's not. It's a mm-hmm. different experience. Yeah. yeah. One thing that I find challenging about being in situations where the audience is not getting much acoustic feedback is that at that point, the musical expression is now in the hands of the sound designer. Yes. And that, you know, that can work out great. There are so many very talented sound designers in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's really important for you to make sure that you're on the same page in terms of, like, as the music director, what you were trying to create Mm -hmm. in terms of the sound, making sure that they understand that. Um, But I think the biggest challenge for that is that you just don't usually have the time to sit down, go through like the entire show in detail in terms of the like microphones and how all of that is working. Yeah. And there's sort of this mood. There's a, uh, in my brain, I tend to group these shows in certain things like rock shows, like Legally Blonde and like all of the Lawrence O'Keefe's and all that kind of those shows and Heather's and those ones into these very specific configurations of bands. They mm-hmm. always do. Um, what are the combinations? They always tend to have two keyboards in them or three, depending on what yeah. they're doing. Well, Shrek is like that. Too. Shrek, Shrek and yeah, Shrek is like that. Um, Adam's family. is actually like that. Right. Yeah. Um, where you have like two keyboards and then maybe two reeds, a trumpet, a trombone, maybe a horn. Right. Yeah. Right. It's interesting to bring up Lawrence O'Keefe, right? Because you can compare Heathers and Legally Blonde, which mm-hmm. really are so different in their orchestrations. They're, mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely I'd qualify them both as rock shows. For sure. Um, but Legally Blonde is so much bigger. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Heathers only has seven parts, I think, oh, really? in the orchestra, the original one. And that would be just due to size of the original production. Like the Broadway show was large scale. And Heather's played at New World Stages, which doesn't even have a pit. Like, the musicians were off in the wings. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, but and that's another one, Heather's, that's written. It's very hard to choose something to take out because they're all so important in their own right, the way yeah. that those parts have been written. And, um, you know, and that's what we have to deal with a lot, being in Vancouver, for also for people that don't, that don't know. When we just get the rights to these shows, they were written often when it's done off Broadway or it's done on Broadway, the next thing that happens when they want to give the rights away is they just hand the books over to the rights company and like, okay, see you later. That's it. They don't do any changes. It's just like, go Mm -hmm. like, maybe there was a tour arrangement done of it where they did like a reduction, but otherwise you just get the books that they kind of gave for the original one. That's it. And I do think that the licensing company should make an effort to make those orchestrations available to companies especially they know that this is what's going on they know that every time they rent out their show people are cutting things and reducing because they have to Mm -hmm. um but so for instance when we did jesus christ superstar there's i think there's three different orchestrations that are available there's like the big original one which has like 20 something people in it Mm -hmm. and there's one that's pared down to like 13 or 15 but then there was a professional version of the show done in the uk that had just five it was a rock combo Mm -hmm. and so those professional orchestrations exist but the problem is that they just don't let you have them they won't license it out to Mm -hmm. anyone who's not in england 
Right, yes. Um, and that's very frustrating because that would have been, like, perfect for us to use. And it's essentially what we ended up doing. We just had to do it ourselves. Yeah. Whereas we could have just been sent these materials and, and it's sort of made our life easier. Yeah, it's that gray area. Sort of the, like, everybody knows it's happening on the you know, music director's page on Facebook. It's, like, essentially yeah. where all the questions are is how do we reduce yeah. and... Yeah. Where can you get them? And it is interesting that that Facebook page because you do get people that are from New York and also people from England and everything, and they keep talking about different arrangements, and mm-hmm. we don't have access to them all. Yeah. The other interesting thing is, and I don't often know details about this because I never see the rental contract, uh, but certain shows specify in your contract like whether or not you are allowed to even change anything mm-hmm. in the orchestra. And if so, what you are allowed to change. Like, I remember when I did Dogfight. So that's written for six. And they said there's a violin and cello in that orchestration. And the license stipulates that you can either have both of them or none of them. So they're fine with you not using strings at all. But, like, you couldn't choose technically to just have violin or just Mm. have cello. Interesting. Yeah. I didn't. And I don't know how many shows do that. Right. Hmm. I mean, so here's the other question. Is it education? Should we be educating um, producers as from our position? I mean, obviously, we want to keep our jobs, but is there a certain responsibility to make sure you say, you know, it's great that you want to do this show, but you don't have nearly the budget to do this show? Like, how do you put that out? I don't know. That's a hard one because, you know, and as much as, we want to fight for like the music side of things. Of course, they have so many different departments to consider and like everyone's dealing with the same things. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't know. I think that it, you can do that. Um, but I think a producer is always uh, thinking budget. For sure. And um, I, I guess it depends on the background too. Like I was actually thinking about this this morning that... Um, a producer who is uh, who comes from, say, a music background may actually listen to your argument and um, and do something with you. Uh, but perhaps uh, a producer who comes from a being on stage background may think differently, mm-hmm. right? They may think more of the uh, flashy show, technical, you know fireworks and pyro and all that sort of stuff and you know what do you want to give your audience i guess Mm -hmm. i think it's great to bring up those concerns uh but i think you need to be prepared for nothing to change at the same time yeah um in this case too uh for producers i think i've always wondered obviously you wanted to choose this show because it spoke to you in some way or Mm -hmm. they they've chosen it so was it not partly the music that you listened to and was like, yes, you know, that's really what it moved me. But you're already compromising on the original sound of the show, yeah. especially when they choose big shows. You know, like I always wanted to do, I don't know, whatever, Fiddler or something big. And you're like, OK, well, you, you have to do it with piano. So I hope that's OK. And you're like, well, you fell in love with that show partly because it sounded a certain way. So it's funny that you're like, I'm initially going to cut that thing out of it, you know. I think we get into a bit of a vicious circle with it, too, Mm -hmm. because, you know, every show is reducing and cutting. And so you see that and you're like, well, they did it so we can do it. And right. Mm -hmm. And somewhat successfully. Just like make it work. It's true. Do you think that 
it's it should be the music director's job to be doing that. To, to, no, to I think that's too many hats for one person to wear. Yeah. Uh, but I don't know who else is going to do it. Right. Notice every tree. Understand the light. I want to move on. I want to explore the light. I want to know how to get through. Through to something new. Something of my own. Move on. Move on. Stop worrying if your vision is new. Let others make that decision they usually do. Um. Was there any shows that you could think of that you worked on where you thought it worked quite successfully as a reduction? I mean, obviously, that you had done yourself. You know, Sunday in the Park actually hit this home for me, is that I don't think that there's a wrong choice. You know, every time it comes to reducing a show and I have to pick what to cut, I like I agonize over it for so long. I'm like, mm-hmm. I don't want to make the wrong decision. Um, and so on Sunday, we actually ended up with, uh, not what I had originally intended to have in the orchestra, just for reasons like couldn't find somebody to play, people were unavailable. So something changed there. And in the end, I think that that is the best option that we could have had. And I'm like, well, yeah, I think things just kind of end up working out. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really good point because, um, you can, you can take something away that you maybe don't want to take, but does it actually make it worse? Maybe not. Mm-hmm. Maybe it just makes it a different sound. That's right. Um, and and maybe that's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, like yeah. it wasn't the original sound you wanted, but it worked. Yeah. So uh, as long as you still capture the flavor of the show. Yeah. One, one thing that I try to remind myself too is that 90% of the audience isn't, going to know the details and it will sound great to them no matter what you end up choosing uh like for company at united players last year uh we paired like 13 players down to four it was piano percussion trumpet and reeds Mm -hmm. and to me like every time we play the show i'm like there's so many parts that are missing that i would love to have but like every single night i'd get compliments on how great it sounded and oh you only had four players it sounded like eight and all of that right so you have to remember that i think you will still no matter what you do you will appease your audience right yeah the average person might not know but the the, does that excuse it then yes i don't know does that make it okay well that's hard no i don't think it does make it okay but totally is there like a number that you can think of where you think like Gateway's been lucky like this. It's like ten players uh, works really well. Like it's mm-hmm. just enough to really cover a lot of sound that I think is good. Is there a number in your brain that you think that's basically the minimum I want to work with at any given time? I think a lot of the um, a lot of the shows, newer shows, I guess that that we've that I've seen um, have been around twelve. 12. Yeah. 12 yeah. seems to be a number. That's and it tough. seems, it seems a good, it seems to be a good number. I mean, that includes two keyboards, um, who are, uh, um, thickening, but, yeah. but still, I think that that number to me is a good number. 
Yeah, 12, mm-hmm. yeah. Have you? Uh, my budget's usually just four or five, and that's usually mm-hmm. sure. what I get yeah. to work with. Um, I'm almost at the point now where I feel like if I can't have the full thing that I almost just want, like piano and drums, just keep <laughs> it simple. Is there any instrument you would spend the more money on? Like, is there an instrument you're like, if, if I'm going to have this instrument, it's got to be a good player. Do you have any instrument? I know exactly yeah. which I, one. Trumpets I know, yeah, are trumpet, hard. Trumpets. Yeah. Not that trumpet players don't have a big enough ego already, uh, but <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> definitely uh, it, for most shows, you want to have a good, solid lead trumpet player. Yeah, there are so many trumpet parts that are so hard, just so high, mm-hmm. so crazy. But yeah. it is, yeah, and I, I, it's amazing. It's worth the money to get the players, you know, that are good. And it, it's, but you know, it's other, unlike any other instrument, when it makes a mistake, it's just the most noticeable thing. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's way, I mean, how can you have written such an inaccurate instrument? But when some people is really good at it, they're really good at it. But there are a lot of people that call themselves trumpet players that cannot play consistently well. And I think that's very odd. Yeah. I'm glad we all agree on that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but do you think that the books are written too difficultly uh, for you know, the, the more shows that we get now? I think that the books are written ambitiously. I for think trumpet. Are th- we specifically talking about trumpet? Yeah, trumpet. Yeah. Um, I think the books are written for professionals. Yeah. Which is fine because yeah. that's you know where these productions start. Yeah, and I also think when when a show is on Broadway and the orchestrator's there, and things are changing, they do tend to change to the strengths of who's currently playing. Yeah, at least that's my impression of you know having read some 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 of the scores. a few other people too but uh, you know in your case too because it's both of you too what what do you feel like that you you feel the most proud about accomplished wise so far in your careers and their young careers but what do you feel that you you've been the most pleased with and it doesn't have to be specifically about orchestration but it can be but I don't know that I've been able to stay in it this long yeah. <laughs> uh no uh I think I think one of the things that I feel most accomplished about is the people that I've met along the way and uh, the friends that we've made um, mm-hmm. and being able to do this kind of thing where, you know, we're having a good conversation about about topics that others think about but maybe don't don't mm-hmm. express. Don't. Yeah. yeah. It's going to sound really cheesy, but I'm like so grateful every day that I just get to spend time doing something that I love to do so much. And, and like, I didn't ever expect or plan to end up doing this kind of thing. And it's pretty great. Um, for something like concrete, I guess, playing the Gateway show mm-hmm. this past year, that was a big, big one for me. It was like the first, uh, like union job and all mm-hmm. of that. So that was really exciting for cool. me. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, I don't think anyone ever... It's hard to say that you ever were ambitious to become an MD or a player. Mm-hmm. Most people tend to have fallen into either being a pit player or a, 
or an MD. And that's sort of an interesting, it brings an interesting group of people. For myself, I know I came from a performing side and from high school and music was always a thing, but I remember getting into musical theater and thinking, oh, I I could do that. I mean, that's something that I'd be interested in doing, but it was never an ambition. Totally. I'd say the majority of the MDs I know, at least here, got into it just because they were the one who could play piano right yeah that's funny because i i have i have recently heard a comment um when choosing a music director and um one of the i guess sort of criteria was oh they play piano yeah yeah they could do it which i have to say i think that that is really too bad and it Mm -hmm. you know it does come down to budget because nobody can afford to hire a rehearsal pianist but i think there are a number of people like yourself, Kevin, I think you'd make a phenomenal music director. And it just, it's too bad that most of the time people wouldn't get that opportunity simply because you don't play piano, which shouldn't be a requirement. That's awesome. I thank you for mo- both doing this today. So um, it's it's nice to be able to talk about these kind of subjects. And uh, there's so much more to say. This might have to be like a two part or three part. There's so many things to talk <laughs> yeah. about. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we'll have you both back soon. So product thank- testing. Product, te- product yeah, testing. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. We're getting the products. So be ready to play um, on the next episode. <laughs> we'll, we'll be playing the Iwi. Yes. So be ready for it. But thanks for both doing this today. Thanks for yeah, having thank us. Thank you this for having fun. us. That was my conversation with Kevin Wu and Claire Wyatt. For more information about the show, including guest bios and photos, please visit our website at fromthepitpodcast.com or visit us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash fromthepitpodcast and join the conversation.